With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Taishin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories from Caixin, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Cynical Podcast. And I'm Ida Shen in Beijing. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. China's broad-level economic data came in this week, showing that manufacturing activity contracted for the first time in 11 months, an industry survey sponsored by Caixin showed, highlighting a growth downturn in the world's second-largest economy. But negative effects from this were partially offset by growth in the services sector. The overall picture, however, added the signs that growing momentum weakened in China in the second quarter. Meanwhile, the Chinese yuan continued to strengthen against the U.S. dollar, with China's central bank guiding the currency higher in the market. Market speculation said that China's central bank may have intervened to shore up the yuan after Moody's downgraded China's sovereign debt last week. But some analysts pointed out that the PBOC may also be making preparation to counter effects of an anticipated rate hike by the U.S. Fed in July, which could also add pressure on the yuan. In corporate news, shared economy specialist Airbnb announced its appointment of a China chief with more than a decade of experience in Silicon Valley, a half year after it launched its hotel alternative services into the fast-growing China market. Ge Hong joins Airbnb as vice president responsible for the company's China business, the company announced on Thursday. He joins from social networking giant Facebook, where he worked for seven years, most recently building up the business of placing advertisements in users' news feeds, according to his LinkedIn account. Before that, he worked for four years at Google as a software engineer. UnionPay, operator of China's state-run electronics payment network, said it will extend its newly launched mobile-based payment system to Hong Kong and Singapore as it attempts to play catch-up with rival services operated by Alipay and WeChat. Finally, at least 14 employees at a coal power plant in central Hubei province were facing criminal charges or being investigated in connection with a blast that killed 22 and left another four critically injured last year. The explosion at the power plant in the city of Dangyang in August 2016 was caused by a breach of quality control and safety rules, said the deputy director of the Hubei Provincial Bureau of Work Safety. Let's turn now to some of the editors at Caixin Global to chat about some more of the week's stories. First up is Doug Young in Beijing. So, Doug, what is going on in China business news? So today I thought we'd talk about a couple of IPOs that were in the headlines. Uh, the first one was involving a company called Mindray Medical, which makes medical devices. Surprise, surprise. And the second one 
is about a company called Wuxi Biologics, which is a biotech company. So they make biotech drugs. And the common thread really is that they're both healthcare companies and they're both making pretty large IPOs. The Wuxi Biologics one would be in Hong Kong, and that's for about 500 million US dollars. And the Mindray one would be even larger, it'd be about a billion US dollars. And I think these should both get pretty good investor interest. China's medical market or China's healthcare market really is in a bit of a sorry state, in need of something. Uh, and these are companies that are really playing to the piper. China used to be a socialist system where people got all their health care, not very high quality, uh, from their work units. And of course, all these work units have been disbanded. So now there's this real patchwork of state hospitals that are very difficult places. They often won't accept people unless they pay cash. And so there's really not a great safety net in China for a lot of people who can't afford expensive medical care. So Beijing is putting together this national health care plan. Uh, they're setting up lots of private clinics, and they're spending lots and lots of money on it. And, and companies like Mindray and Wuxi Biologics are going to be well positioned to cash in on Beijing's big health care spending. So Mindray delisted from New York about a year ago, and they're already getting ready to relist? That's a pretty quick relisting, isn't it? So Mindray was among about three dozen companies that were listed, Chinese companies that were listed in New York, and they all delisted. They privatized. And the reason that they did so was because they thought they weren't appreciated. Their stocks were sort of languishing for years. And a few big Chinese names like Alibaba and Baidu their stocks do pretty well, but it's true that a lot of these sort of second-tier Chinese companies weren't doing very well. Uh, and the idea was that American investors weren't interested in them. They didn't know the China story. They didn't know these companies' stories. There just wasn't a market for them. So what's interesting is that Mindray has delisted, and in this plan they're putting forward for the new IPO, they would actually get a valuation. The company's valuation would be around $10 billion dollars. And if you look at where they were when they left New York, they were worth about a third of that, $3.3 billion. So you can see there really is quite a gap in perceptions between American investors and Chinese investors, if they get the full valuation. But even if they don't, I'm sure it'll probably still be worth at least twice as much as it was in New York. And this is the same company. The only difference is one is listed in China, one is listed in New York. So does that speak to a bigger issue? I think there's two things. One, they always say a company is best off listing in its home market because consumers, investors are going to be more familiar with them. They'll be familiar with the name. They'll often be familiar with the category. In this case, remember, I talked about China's growing healthcare industry. American investors aren't going to really know that story, whereas Chinese will know it much better. So in those terms, you're always better off listing in China. The problem was for many years, private Chinese companies couldn't list in China, but now there are more options for them. That's why they went to the U.S. in the first place, was it was very difficult for private companies like Mindray to list in China. That's one thing. And then the only other thing is that Chinese investors do tend to value companies in general higher than investors anywhere else in the world. So people point out that you can have a stock, say, for ICBC, and they'll have Hong Kong-listed shares, 
and Shanghai listed shares and the identical share, like one stock in the company will actually trade for like a 10 or 20% premium in Shanghai, even though it's identical to the price in Hong Kong. And that's just a fact that, you know, Chinese are big gamblers. They, they like to pump up prices, play the markets, that sort of thing. So you, you can, generally speaking, get higher valuations in China than you can in other places for the exact same product. Thanks, Doug. And this week, we also have Caixin Global Editor Purnima Weerasekara to tell us about another couple of interesting items in the news. Purnima, I take it uh, some town in China is building a full-sized replica of the Titanic? I mean, this is in many ways one of those only-in-China stories, right? Chinese media has been buzzing about the construction of a life-size replica of the Titanic in a tiny county in Sichuan province. Now, it's being constructed in a place that is one hour away from Chengdu, which is where the largest panda conservation reserve is located. This is the third attempt to create a life-size replica of the doomed ocean liner. What's interesting is that the small county is banking on the Titanic to attract tourists and boosts its local economy. And it's part of this growing trend of Chinese entertainment companies pouring money into small towns and creating theme parks, hoping to attract those who can't afford the bigger theme parks coming up, like the Shanghai Disneyland or Universal Studios here in Beijing. China is riding on a theme park high, and analysts are estimating that the Chinese market or demand for theme parks would exceed that of the US by 2020. And many of these Chinese companies are trying to attract not just people from villages, but entertainment-hungry residents in small towns who may not necessarily find their way to Shanghai to go on a Disney ride. So will this ship ever actually sail? So this Titanic replica is going to be permanently moored onto a riverbank. It's never going to set sail. But what's interesting is it's going to recreate the original ballroom and have a kitchen that's going to serve the original European cuisine that was enjoyed by the passengers And in a morbid twist, it's going to simulate the experience of being aboard the ship at the moment it crashes on the iceberg. This has attracted a lot of criticism from the families of survivors of the original RMS Titanic. But the Chinese developers are just cruising along without stopping. So switching gears, there's some corruption news in the news this week as well, yeah? Last week's biggest corruption headline was the fact that Tianjin's former police chief, Wu Changshun, being sentenced to death and It is seen as one of the harshest sentences to be given to a corrupt official because usually in China, when you get the death penalty, it is changed into a life sentence. But in the case of Wu, the court specifically said that he will not be eligible for parole or for a further commutation of his sentence. And he was found guilty of not just taking bribes worth 84 million yuan, but also for possessing public property worth 342 million yuan. And interestingly using his position to run more than 70 businesses with his relatives and intimidating his commercial rivals. So I read the story. Could you give us a flavor of some of the valuables that this guy had managed to collect with these illicit funds? Wu had funneled most of his money into collecting ancient scrolls and antiques as a way of whitewashing his ill-gotten gains. Some of the stuff that was confiscated by graph busters were auctioned over a two-year period and Saishin went and got the auction catalogue. What we found was quite bizarre. Wu had a platinum timepiece handcrafted by a French jeweller that was inlaid with 55 diamonds, 34 rubies, encased in a sapphire crystal glass banded with a white crocodile leather strap. 
The auction house has quoted an opening price of 386,000 yuan for this, but market observers say the vanity piece carries a value of 880,000 yuan. Wu has also been hoarding paintings from some of China's best-selling artists, including Zhang Dachian, who was ranked as China's highest-selling or most expensive traditional artist by a Hurun list last year. We don't know exactly which artwork from Zhang was in Wu's collection. But to give you a rough idea, one of Zhang's paintings called Red Lotus that went under the hammer at a Christie's auction that opened on Tuesday in Hong Kong was valued at a whopping $520,000. Wu also had a penchant for exquisite antiques. He had several jade bracelets, one valued at a whopping 1.6 million yuan and another at 80 million yuan. So so is there a, a bigger picture here? The bigger picture here is that many corrupt officials are buying art and antiques as a way of laundering their ill-gotten gains. And this is one of the reasons that China's art market has overtaken the United States as the biggest art market in the world, with sales of over $4.8 billion. Fascinating. Thanks, Purnima. And now for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll tell you about how gambling debts have led to the suspension of the top coach of the Chinese women's table tennis team, Kong Linghui. We look into how Chinese-built railroads are putting growth in East Africa on the fast track. We'll hear how a growing number of Chinese couples desperate for children are turning to surrogacy, despite its being illegal. And we'll find out how a new benchmark seems to be emerged in sentencing standards for Chinese criminal courts, where taking bribes of over 100 million yuan will get a corrupt official a life sentence. From People China's Prince of Ping-Pong suspended amid casino dispute by April Ma and Liao Yuanxi. Beijing A debt racked up at a Singapore casino has called a timeout on the career of Chinese ping-pong hero Kong Linghui, the current chief coach of the national women's table tennis team. Often dubbed the prince of China's most widely played and strongest competitive sport, Kong is being sued by a luxury Singaporean hotel for failing to fully repay a 1 million Singapore dollar or 721,300 US dollar credit line taken out from the hotel's casino operator two years ago. Following media reports on Monday, Kung, who bagged Olympic gold medals in both the Atlanta and Sydney Olympics, was sent home by China's Table Tennis Association on the second day of the World Championships currently being held in Germany. The association said his actions were a severe breach of the Code of Conduct for Chinese civil servants, which prohibits gambling of any kind, and led to him being temporarily relieved of his coaching duties. But the celebrated champion challenged the allegations on Weibo, He said he put down his personal information on behalf of relatives to take out the one million Singapore dollar credit line. Kung said he was merely a spectator at the casino and did not take part in gambling himself, adding that he was unaware of the unsettled debt until he heard news of it in the press. From Business and Tech, Chinese-built railroad speeds growth in East Africa region by Song Shiqing, Beijing. A 480-kilometer Chinese-built railway that could reshape East Africa's economy by linking Kenya's port of Mombasa to its capital Nairobi has officially opened. 
The project to build the $3.8 billion railway, dubbed the Madaraka Express, was Kenya's largest infrastructure initiative in more than 40 years, and the completed line is being touted as a major success for the Belt and Road, Chinese President Xi Jinping's ambitious infrastructure and trade program connecting China with Europe, Southeast Asia, and Africa. Speaking at an inauguration ceremony Wednesday, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta said that the new railroad will reshape the story of Kenya by replacing tracks British colonialists built 120 years ago. Trains riding the decaying Uganda Railway between Mombasa and Nairobi have been notoriously slow and shaky. The railway's freight service is considered inefficient and so out of step with the region's developing economy that large amounts of cargo must be moved on Kenya's congested roads. Rail cargo volumes have been falling in recent years, even as Mombasa's port cargo volume has exploded, reaching 27 million metric tons in 2016. Projections call for capacity to rise to 44 million metric tons by 2025, according to the port's operator. The Madaraka Express is designed to handle up to 22 million metric tons of freight every year and will help freight handlers overcome capacity constraints at Mombasa's port, according to China Communications Construction Co., the CCCC, the parent company of railway builder China Road and Bridge Corp. The port is the biggest and most important gateway for the six countries that make up the East African community. The railway is slated to expand and eventually connect Mombasa to landlocked South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Rwanda. And the new line is fast, having shortened the Mombasa-Nairobi ride to four and a half hours. A trip on the old line could take more than a day. An import-export Bank of China loan to the Kenyan government covered 90% of the project's cost, while the government is paying the rest. He Wenping, chief researcher at the Institute of West Asian and African Studies at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, sees no obstacles to timely loan repayments given the financial strength of Mombasa's port and trade growth. The railway benefits both Kenya and China, He said. The potential risk of a delayed payment should be non-existent, as the capacity of the Mombasa port is strong and growing. The construction project created 46,000 jobs and is estimated to add 1.5% to Kenya's gross domestic product growth, according to the CCCC. The railway is also expected to benefit Kenyan's tourism sector, since the trains roll through scenic areas including the Mount Kilimanjaro region and two national parks. Domestic tourism revenue was expected to double over the next year, Kenyan's Cabinet Secretary for Tourism, Najib Balala, told China's official Xinhua News Agency on Thursday. And a passenger ride on the new line costs considerably less than the bus fare. The railroad has been criticized by wildlife activists who say it interferes with animal migration. The organization Save the Elephants said at least 10 elephants have been killed by trains since construction began in May 2014. However, He dismissed the migration complaints as total nonsense, noting that, when I visited the construction site, I saw a number of bridges and culverts that had been built to allow animal movement. Besides, He argued, animal interests should not be put ahead of human interests. From People Chinese couples desperate for children turn to illegal surrogacy by Sheng Menglu, Zhang Congzhi, and Li Rongde, Beijing. It took three trips to the United States in the course of one and a half years and a whopping 1.8 million yuan, $260,000 payment before Wan Quan could hold his son born through surrogacy in the U.S. last summer. The staggering sum that included $70,000 for the surrogate mother is more than three times the amount for a similar service in China, said Wan, a businessman from the southwestern city of Chengdu who used a pseudonym to protect his identity. 
But the extra money not only helped him to shield his family from the prying eyes of friends and relatives and the stigma, but also to avoid the legal landmines associated with surrogacy in China. Although the Chinese government banned surrogacy in 2001, private clinics offering such services continued to operate in a legal gray zone. This means contracts signed between agents, surrogates, and couples wanting children are not legally binding, leading to custody battles and even blackmail where surrogate mothers have threatened to abort a fetus if families didn't pay more money. There are no authoritative figures, but Wang Feng, who runs a fertility clinic in Wuhan, Hubei province, says up to 3,000 surrogacy operations are carried out each year in his province alone. He estimates the number nationwide could well exceed 20,000 per year. Demand for black market services has grown after the government started easing family planning restrictions in 2014. Couples eligible to have a second child, but fearing a high-risk pregnancy if the mother was beyond childbearing age or who had trouble conceiving, often turned to surrogacy. Wan and his wife, who already had a six-year-old daughter, had always wanted a second child but hesitated because of China's one-child policy put in place since the early 1980s. The government eased its iron grip by allowing couples, where either the husband or the wife was an only child, to have a second baby in 2014 and later moved to scrap the one-child policy in early 2016. But the change came too late for Wan and his wife, who were in their late 30s and found they had trouble conceiving. After several failed attempts, Wan said he and his wife opted for surrogacy and chose a facility in the U.S. over one in China to avoid legal uncertainties and scrutiny from close family and friends. The couple's hopes were dashed on their first trip in early 2015 when the IVF implant on the surrogate mother failed, but it succeeded in a second attempt. The child, a boy weighing 2.5 kilograms, was born to a 27-year-old Caucasian woman with eggs donated by a third party at Mountain View Hospital in Las Vegas, Nevada in the summer of 2016. It was a dream come true, Juan said, but, quote, it's a little strange to think the child was carried to term by a woman I've never met, unquote. This will be a secret between my wife and I, he said. I'll only tell my son that he was born in the U.S. Threatening abortion to extort money. Commercial surrogacy is banned in most parts of the world, as well as in many U.S. states. But the few U.S. states that offer surrogacy services have seen soaring demand from wealthy Chinese clients. California in particular, with its culturally friendly enclaves and favorable state laws that regard intended parents as a baby's legal parents even before birth, if proper court documents are filed, has become a magnet for surrogacy seekers. About 1,000 Chinese couples seek surrogacy services in the United States annually, according to Joanne Zhou from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. China's first baby conceived through in vitro fertilization, IVF, was born in 1988, but it took another decade before a woman in Beijing gave birth to the first baby via surrogacy. But a roaring ethical debate that ensued prompted Beijing to ban the procedure in 2001, and regulators have intensified a clampdown on illegal services in recent years by targeting public hospitals that outsource their fertility clinics to private operators to profit from surrogacy services. Despite the crackdown, these underground clinics are flourishing as a rise in infertility rates fuels demand. One in eight people of childbearing age in China, or 40 million people, suffer from infertility, according to a 2012 study released by the government-backed China Population Association. It was an alarming increase from two decades earlier when the country's infertility rate was 3%, it said. More and more homosexual would-be dads are also turning to surrogacy. But because these services operate in a legal limbo, distrust among clients, agents, facility operators, and surrogate mothers runs deep. 
and disputes were rampant. One high-profile case involving an infertile woman and her in-laws over the custody of her fraternal twins, a boy and a girl, in Shanghai six years ago, led to a national debate over how the ban was affecting the legal rights of children born through surrogacy. According to case records, Li Lin, in her early 40s, and her husband had twin babies via surrogacy using the eggs from another woman seven years ago. Her in-laws, who were aware of the arrangement, took her to a Shanghai court in November 2015, demanding sole custody of the two children after the death of Li's husband in 2014, saying Li had no biological link to them. The number one intermediate people's court in Shanghai upheld Li's rights to the children, saying it served their best interest if they were left in the care of Li as a stepmother. It's imperative for us to better protect children born via surrogacy in areas such as custody, child support, and inheritance, irrespective of whether surrogacy was illegal or not, the court concluded in its verdict. The case again made national headlines in March when the country's Supreme People's Court, in a report to the top legislature, the National People's Congress, cited the ruling as an example of protecting children's rights, although surrogacy remained illegal. In practice, all parties, including clients, surrogate mothers, and egg donors, usually sign a contract with an agent even though they know that such agreements are useless under Chinese law and regulations, said Wang, who runs the Wuhan Fertility Clinic. But there were occasions when clients have pulled out of contracts halfway through or demanded a refund or extra compensation from agents when a pregnancy had resulted in a stillbirth, he said. There were also incidents where surrogate mothers threatened to abort a fetus to extort more money from intended parents, Wong said. In rare instances, surrogates have lied about having a miscarriage to keep both the advance payment and the child, he added. A man in Xiamen, Fujian province, hired a surrogate mother via a local agent in 2011 after his only daughter, who was in a coma from a traffic accident for three years, died in 2007. But the woman refused to hand over the baby girl born the following year. After he cut off her child support, the surrogate mother took him to court, and in an ensuing custody battle, a local court ruled against the man on the grounds that their surrogacy agreement wasn't legally binding. He was also ordered to continue to support the child until she turned 18, court papers showed. Exploiting Poor Wombs There are worse tales. In some instances, agents have given drugs to surrogates to induce an abortion before they've completed the first trimester, without the women's knowledge, so that agents could keep a large chunk of the money clients had already wired to their accounts, said Li Yue, who runs a surrogacy service in Xi'an, northwestern Shanxi province. Would-be surrogate mothers were usually women in their late 20s or early 30s who've already given birth to their own children, said Li. Many of them were from poor regions with little education and were vulnerable to scammers given the lack of legal protections, he added. Several agents told Saixin that a surrogate mother usually gets paid between 100,000 and 200,000 yuan per pregnancy, a tempting amount for many in impoverished villages in China. Qi Qi, 26, a single mother with a seven-year-old girl from Liaocheng in eastern Shandong province, said she had learned about surrogacy from her cousin who had found a client. Chi-Chi said she was keen to follow her cousin's footsteps because it offered quick money. But if I find a client, I have to leave my daughter behind for at least a year and lie to my family, saying I found a job in another city, she said. The strict ban on surrogacy remains a contentious issue in China. Proponents of the ban, like Ma Yinan, a professor of law at Peking University, says commercial surrogacy, quote, turns downtrodden women into nothing but a reproduction tool for the rich by offering them the possibility of renting out their wombs for money, unquote. But others, like Luo Guangnan, 
head gynecologist at the Luohu Hospital in Shenzhen, says surrogacy could be a lifeline for women caught in poverty if they are guaranteed about 200,000 yuan for helping others to have a baby after they've had their own children. From People. Is taking a 100 million yuan bribe the new ticket to a life sentence in China? By Cui Xiangkong and Li Rongde, Beijing. The decision by Chinese courts to hand out life sentences to three top officials, including the former head of the Statistics Bureau on Wednesday, has Chinese media buzzing about whether 100 million yuan in ill-gotten gains was the unofficial benchmark to identify the extremely corrupt. Fifteen senior officials have been convicted or charged with taking bribes or embezzling public funds to the tune of 100 million yuan or more as of May 31st under China's ongoing anti-corruption campaign, court documents showed. Many of them have received a life sentence, prompting media speculation that owning illicit assets worth 100 million yuan was the new de facto threshold for the strictest punishment for top officials implicated for graft. But Chinese law doesn't specify such a benchmark, and penalties for convicted officials aren't simply tied to the amount of ill-gotten gains. They can differ based on how far they've cooperated with the investigation. Wang Baoan, former head of the National Bureau of Statistics, NBS, was sentenced for life for accepting 153 million yuan, 22.5 million, in bribes, according to a verdict released by the Zhangjiakou Intermediate People's Court in Hebei Province on Wednesday. Wang, 53, was among eight senior party and government officials to be convicted for corruption on that day. Two others in the group, Yu Ziyue, former mayor of Ningbo in Zhejiang province, and Chen Xuefeng, former party secretary in Luoyang in Henan province, also had ill-gotten gains worth over 100 million yuan and were jailed for life. More than 70 high-flying officials from around the country have fallen from grace after President Xi Jinping launched a major anti-graft crackdown in November of 2012. Former Tianjin police chief Wu Changshun was the fattest tiger netted by the campaign with a whopping 538 million yuan in illicit gains, including cash, jewelry, and a painting collection with pieces from some of the best-selling contemporary Chinese artists. Wu, who last served as a vice chairman of the city's government advisory body, the Tianjin People's Political Consultative Conference, was handed a death sentence with a two-year reprieve by the Zhengzhou Intermediate People's Court on May 27th. Wu's suspended death penalty may turn to a life sentence after the two years expire, the court said, but given the severity of his crimes, he will not be eligible for parole or for a commutation of his sentence. This made Wu the second senior official to receive the harshest punishment given in a bribery case since late 2012. Bai Enpei, former party secretary of the southwestern province of Yunnan, was sentenced to death with a two-year reprieve in October of 2016. A court in Henan province found him guilty of taking 247 million yuan in bribes. Bai's death penalty could also be turned to a life sentence without parole or a chance of a further commutation, according to court documents. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. I'd love to hear from you. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Ada Shen and to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global, as well as to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and follow the news from China daily at SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. 
Take care.